This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results. Made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb, available at Walgreens. Trigger warning, this podcast discusses sexual assault and child abuse, as well as strong language. Listener discretion is advised. I first learned about Lolita when I was 12, and that's the same age as Dolores Hayes, or Lolita, whichever of them you're familiar with, at the beginning of that book. It was 2005. I was in the seventh grade in Massachusetts. I wore a back brace to school, which put off any hope of getting my first kiss until 2008. But in 2005, I had an obsession with Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. I had a school picture wearing a t-shirt that said, Too Young for Ashton. And I read Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita for the first time. But it was not a random selection off the shelf. It had been recommended to me by children's author Lemony Snicket. Yeah, let's take a quick journey. Uh, If you're not familiar, Lolita is a 1955 novel by Russian novelist Vladimir Nabokov. That is Nabokov, but if you correct anyone for saying it Nabokov, you're a jerk. Uh, But it's a book about a middle-aged European pedophile named Humbert Humbert who falls in love with, heavy quotes there, then abducts and sexually and psychologically abuses 12-year-old American girl Dolores Hayes, or Lolita, then abducts and rapes her across the U.S. in the late 1940s. And there's no shying away from the reality here. In spite of how it's been romanticized over the years, Lolita tells the story of a pedophile who abuses a 12-year-old that he's supposed to be the caretaker of. It is horrifying and one of the most controversial texts of the last century. And it's what this podcast is about. Sort of. And if you are also not familiar, Lemony Snicket, the pseudonym for author Daniel Handler, wrote the series of Unfortunate Events books in the early 2000s. There is an adapted movie starring Jim Carrey from 2004, and there's also a more recent Netflix adaptation with Neil Patrick Harris. 
to this day, these books are my favorites in the world, not just because I love the stories, but because Lemony Snicket references a number of famous books and movies and shows to his young readers that they probably wouldn't know about, leaving 12-year-olds with nothing but time and Google to decode his writing and find this whole new media list spanning Moby Dick to Monty Python just by reading the books. Handler has written a number of books targeted at adults as well, with pretty sexual plots, but the majority of his audience, especially in the mid-2000s, were from Lemony Snicket and were children. And because he was my favorite author, I would frequently boot up the family gateway computer to look up interviews with him. The interview I remember reading very clearly is no longer online, but I have something close. This is from an interview he did with IGN in 2004, in which he recommends the following to his fan base. The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami, Mr. Show, the movie Saboteur, a song called Chlorine Bacon Skin by Prince, and Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. Uh, Mr. Handler was not available to be interviewed for this podcast, but he's been talking about Lolita in interviews for nearly 20 years now. And I want to be clear, I am not trying to cancel Daniel Handler or Lemony Snicket over saying his favorite book is Lolita to a majority young audience. If you want to scrutinize his politics for different reasons, feel free to Google his name and then the word controversy and arrive at your own conclusion. There's valid discussions to be had, but that's not what I'm here to discuss on this podcast. The thing is that recommending a book like Lolita was very in the wheelhouse of Lemony Snicket at this time. And the fact that he answered what his favorite book was without a filter was a huge part of what I really liked about his work as a kid. Unlike a lot of YA authors of this era, reading a Lemony Snicket book made me feel like I was an adult. And that by referencing all these fancy vocabulary words and great works of literature, I was given the tools to be seen as an equal to him, be in on it. So Lemony Snicket saying he liked Lolita stuck out to my 12-year-old brain for a lot of reasons once I found out what it was about, because Handler slash Snicket had already made a number of references to Lolita in his own book series. One of the references is a character in the series that is a reference to Lolita's protagonist, Humbert Humbert. Another reference is a plot point from the first book, where villain and acting guardian Count Olaf tries to steal a 14-year-old orphan named Violet Baudelaire's fortune by abusing his parental powers to marry and abduct her. And in my opinion, the biggest reference to Lolita is in the framework and narration style of a series of unfortunate events. Lemony Snicket is Daniel Handler's pseudonym, and Snicket, like Humbert, is a middle-aged man following and tracking down the history of children who may or may not be alive anymore without any of their input. The big important difference here is that Snicket is not the villain of the story, he is merely the documentarian. And that was how I got to Lolita in 2005. I should introduce myself. Uh, my name is Jamie Loftus. I am a writer, comedian, and podcaster. Those jobs are not listed in order of how embarrassing they are. And this is Lolita Podcast, a series exploring the confused cultural legacy of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. We're going to be talking about a thesis's worth of stuff here. How did this story come to be in the first place? How has it morphed into the pentapod monster of a cultural artifact it stands as today? And when Lolita comes up in conversation as a reference, how far exactly from the source material is the reference? Because the meaning of Lolita has evolved over time, whether we're talking about the movies. How did they ever make a movie of Lolita? From Vladimir Nabokov's masterpiece comes a story of love. Or 
the music, which ranges from weird metal songs to the police's teacher-student relationship in Don't Stand So Close to Me, You Know the Lines, It's No Use, He Sees Her, He Starts to Shake and Cough, Just Like the Old Man in That Book by Nabokov. You can tell we can't we can't license the song, so I just have to sing it. There's a song by Australian duo The Veronicas called Lolita that features a love story between an older man and an apparently consenting teenager. There's Katy Perry singing I Studied Lolita Religiously in her single One of the Boys. And then there's, of course, all of Lana Del Rey's early catalog. She's got a song called Lolita. She's got another called Off to the Races, whose chorus goes, Light of my life, fire of my loins, be a good baby, do what I want. And other songs we don't have the licensing rights to. There is hours of Lolita-themed music. Or this line from a failed 1970s Broadway musical that ruined my entire summer. Who is that viper who likes them post-diaper? <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's hear that again. Who is that viper who likes them post-diaper? Someone had to sing that. Let's, and, and there's more. Barely pubescent. 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 And for me, it's the third pubescent where I draw the line. Now, I have a lot of opinions on the legacy of Lolita, but in listening to this series, I want you to form your own. I'm going to be speaking with fans, detractors, literary scholars, experts on and survivors of abuse, directors, authors, and a lot of the women who have played the titular character in these adaptations. And I also recognize that discussing this book at all is a minefield. I'm going to be too close-minded for some, too permissive for others, but I'm going to try and show you every perspective on this story that I can. But goddamn, there is really a lot. Because this is an inherently politicized text. And I can't even guarantee that how I feel about this book now is how I will always feel about it. If the many people I've spoken to for this show are any indication, I probably won't. Lolita is a terrible and complicated story with a complicated legacy, but I think it is one that's still worth examining today. As a survivor of abuse myself that has been haunted by this book since it was recommended to me by my favorite children's author, I want to understand that. And as a feminist, I struggle to say that Lolita is a feminist text or even that Nabokov is a feminist writer. So why am I so stuck on it? I've been finding that there are two huge conversations to be had when it comes to the adaptations and the cultural influence of Lolita. There's one conversation that's more connected to the sexualization of young girls in media, which is more connected to the movies and the aesthetic. And then there's a conversation more connected to the book, which we're going to talk about today. And that conversation is the ethics of pedophile as protagonist and narrator. So for me, there's really no gut reaction to the cultural topic of Lolita that you can discredit. It makes sense that people have very strong reactions to this text because the topic of pedophilia and assault of minors is a hugely upsetting, large issue that has been with humanity for at least all of recorded history, and it remains a huge issue now. The year this podcast is released, the Jeffrey Epstein story is still being reported on detail by excruciating detail. The QAnon conspiracy theory details false allegations about current public figures being pedophiles, specifically targeting that same fear that many people have of children being preyed upon. Here are some recent statistics from RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, on this topic. 
One in nine girls under 18 experience sexual abuse at the hands of an adult, and of these victims, two out of three are between the ages of 12 and 18. 93% of victims know their assaulter at the time of their assault, and these are just statistics for cases that are reported. And on top of that, according to the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community, one in four black girls are sexually abused by age 18. Sexual violence and abuse is disproportionately high against indigenous women and girls, with one in two experiencing sexual violence at some point in their lives, according to a UN report from 2014. Another little discussed issue is how pedophilia affects young boys, something, according to Brian Boyd's biography of him, Nabokov experienced as a child at the hands of an uncle at a really young age while still living in Russia. One in five boys are sexually abused by the age of 18, according to the Advocacy Center. So. Lolita the book has always warranted a huge response because it's one of the few major literary works, especially up until it was published in 1955, that attempts to grapple with this theme and reality exclusively at all. (laughs) And like literature students, don't come for me, I know it was not the first book to deal with this. All this to say that the sexual assault of girls is a gigantic issue and an issue that sexualization of girls in media is in direct conversation with. And the difference between how publicly these issues are discussed between 1955 and now is gigantic. So yeah, reactions to Lolita are big and it makes total sense that they are. But if you're not familiar with the book itself and are mostly acquainted with the sexualized cultural figure that is Lolita, you may be surprised to hear that Nabokov's book is, at least for my money, as anti-pedophile as a book can possibly be while still being narrated by Humbert Humbert. So I want this dialogue to not just be with people who are experts on the topic. I want it to be with you too, because I feel that so much of how this book affects you has to do with what your experience with the story is coming in and at what point in your life you first encountered it. With that in mind, I bravely set up a phone line. It's 626-872-4458 if you want to weigh in. And I asked people what their experience with Lolita was. Had they read the book? Had they seen movies? Had they just heard of it? Here's what some of you said. And these voicemails have been edited for clarity. My uh, history with Lolita is fraught and complicated and also the best. Um, I first encountered Nabokov's writing. um, We read an essay of his in my AP Lit class in junior year of high school. Um, And then I read Lolita. And I think it's probably the most beautifully written book I've ever read, um, setting aside the, you know, molestation of it all. Somebody picked Lolita for our book club book. I've never seen the movie, never read the book, had a vague idea of what it was about. I tried to read that damn book, and I read five pages of it, and I gave up. I I think I threw the book away. I didn't want anything to do with it. It was the nastiest, grossest thing I've ever even tried to read. The Stanley Kubrick version is way better. I have always found the book Lolita incredibly offensive. I was raped as a child, and it's pretty hard for someone, especially an English professor, to look at you and tell you that it's any about anything other than the kidnap and rape of a child. Um, I'm pretty closed off to anybody else's opinions. Um, it's, I think it's pretty fucked up. It's a really important book um, because it's rare. I feel like you always see 
kind of leering manic girls and it's either just like they're monsters and they're not real life people or it's like okay and they're good guys and the reason why this book is important is because you see this man completely misunderstand like a girl navigating her like burgeoning sexuality and he preys on like I don't know we've all been there when we're young when I was um, 13 14 I was extremely on Tumblr and although I had never, and I still have never, uh, read Lolita, I knew that it was sort of glorified in this way that I really lusted for. My first experience, uh, with it actually was hearing about it in nerdy, like, anime forums. Thank you so much to everyone who called in. I really, really appreciate it. There were many more voicemails, but I tried to pick ones that represented a few perspectives that I saw cropping up again and again. There's the, I love the book, but I think it's very misunderstood in culture. There's the book being framed to its reader in an extremely bad faith way. There's, I read the book, but I was too young to understand what it was really about at the time. There's readers whose personal trauma is an understandably large factor. There's, I haven't read the book, but I was very influenced by the story's cultural aesthetics. There's, I haven't read the book and have no desire to based on the themes. There's anime guy. And my favorite, I am a member of the Lolita fashion community, and we would like to be excluded from this narrative. Thank you so much. I have been involved with Japanese Lolita fashion for about 10 years. I have read the book and watched the film, and I just really, really want to reiterate that uh, Lolita fashion has nothing to do with either the book or the film. And these are all completely valid ways to approach both the text and the cultural Lolita. Personally, I definitely read Lolita before I understood what the book was really about. At 12 years old, I thought that being desired by older men was really cool, and a lot of that had to do with the kind of cultural messaging that existed at this time. We were all there, the mid-2000s was a nightmare. But it also had to do with what I saw going on around me. In 2005, my older cousin was about to marry a teacher she started dating in high school. My female gym teacher would confiscate my book of Lolita from me and then be forced to give it back later. The next year, my junior high track coach would be fired for not what he did to the girls on my track team, but what he did to the high school swim team that he coached as well. A few years after that, when I was in high school, a teacher in his late 20s sent my best friend a picture of his penis on the day she graduated when we were both 17, and we didn't say anything, and he kept inviting high school girls to his house to get drunk, and then he, I think he got promoted. Based on the messages all of you left, this is not an unusual list of things to be happening around a girl growing up, and in retrospect, I feel weirdly, depressingly lucky to have spent most of this time in a full body cast. My reading of Lolita has changed a lot over time, and it's kind of been a fixation of mine over the years into getting to the core of what I found so appealing about it in the first place. I'm going to use the rest of this first episode to talk about exactly what happens in Vladimir Nabokov's 1955 novel, Lolita. We're going to spend the rest of this series tracing and speaking to its history and its influence, but I have been consistently surprised in conversations at how much of the general opinion on this book has very little to do with the book itself. So this explainer is going to be a bit long, but I can assure you that the details really matter here. 
uh, something that's really helped me in getting to the heart of the events in this book and to see around all the flowery, beautiful language is to think of it as a true crime book and view Lolita as what it's presented to us as, a document of a criminal. And so that's the tack I'm going to take here. And, you know, I, I would also recommend reading the book, but books are famously very long. I'm also going to be differentiating between Dolores, the girl who is abducted and raped by Humbert Humbert in the novel, and Lolita, the sexualized construct Humbert has created to justify these crimes. I don't really think that these are the same person, because Dolores is a kid. So, listen carefully, because a lot of what you're about to hear in this summary, you will never hear about in subsequent adaptations again. The first 10% or so of Lolita isn't remembered at all by anyone who hasn't read the book. And to me, it is a big reason why Humbert Humbert comes off as a misunderstood romantic hero instead of a clear-cut predatory liar in most of the adaptations. So before that iconic opening paragraph, Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins. My sin, my soul. No, I know, I get it. But before that, there is a fictional foreword from the fictional John Ray Jr. PhD, an editor of psychology books who is writing an introduction to Humbert Humbert's manuscript. He tells you that what you're about to read is the memoir of Humbert Humbert, name changed, who died in legal captivity in 1952 of heart disease. We also learn that someone named Mrs. Richard F. Schiller has died in childbirth with a stillborn girl on Christmas Day several weeks after that. John Ray Jr. says this about Humbert. No doubt he is horrible, he is abject, he is a shining example of moral leprosy, a mixture of ferocity and jocularity that betrays supreme misery. Many of his casual opinions on the people and scenery of this country are ludicrous, he is abnormal. He is not a gentleman, but how magically his singing violin can conjure up a tenderness, a compassion for Lolita that makes us entranced with the book while abhorring its author. And I mean, if you're looking for a framing of an unreliable narrator before you even meet him, there you go. We are told explicitly that this was written half in a sanatorium, half in a jail cell, under observation, and the text is basically unedited. John Ray continues. In this poignant personal study, there lurks a general lesson. The wayward child, the egotistic mother, the panting maniac. These are not only vivid characters and a unique story. They warn us of dangerous trends. They point out potent evils. Lolita should make all of us, parents, social workers, educators, apply ourselves with still greater vigilance and vision to the task of bringing up a better generation in a safer world. And after that fictional foreword, Humbert Humbert's text of Lolita begins. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul, Lolita. The tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth. Lo, li, ta. She was low, plain low in the morning, standing four feet ten in one sock. She was Lola in slacks. She was Dolly at school. She was Dolores on the dotted line. But in my arms she was always Lolita. His audience for this work is his jurors, and he asks leading questions while taking us through a sweeping look at his early life. He was born in 1910 to a well-off European family, and his mother died in a freak accident when he was three years old. I love the description Nabokov gives for what happens. It's just in parentheses, picnic, comma, lightning. 
When he's 12 years old, he spends the summer on the French Riviera and meets a girl named Annabelle Lee, who's the same age, and they fall madly in love. This summer, he has a number of formative sexual experiences with Annabelle, but they are too heavily supervised to ever consummate the relationship, and she dies of typhus four months later before they can ever see each other again. According to Humbert, the, quote, certain magic, unquote, of Lolita began with this tragedy with Annabelle. And if your brain like mine has been absolutely torpedoed by the internet and you're thinking, Annabelle Lee, that sounds familiar, but you can't quite place it, you are vaguely remembering an Edgar Allan Poe poem by that same name. Maybe you'll recognize it. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea, but we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabelle Lee. I don't think I ever even studied it in school. It was just like hot topic canon. And this reference to Annabelle Lee is a deliberate choice on the part of the author, whether the author we were talking about is Humbert or Nabokov himself, because Edgar Allan Poe married his cousin when she was 13 years old and he was 26 years old. There are a total of 20 references to Poe by Humbert in the book. There's also a few references to Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, made intentionally for a very similar reason. Carroll, real name Charles Dodgson, was a child pornographer who took a number of erotic photos of a 10-year-old named Alice Liddell. Now, this is not very often discussed as his story is still a billion-dollar Disney property, but Dodgson had hundreds of nude and semi-nude photos like this of children. And while sensibilities were different in the 1850s, Liddell's parents had cut off Dodgson from seeing Alice before the book named after her was ever published. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty, beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from The Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast, so grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. 
kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. And it said that Carol, well into his 30s, had asked her parents to marry her. And Nabokov was well aware of Carol slash Dodgson's history, incidentally having translated Alice's Adventures in Wonderland into Russian in his mid-20s to pay the bills. And here is what he had to say of this behavior. He has a pathetic affinity with H.H., but some odd scruple prevented me from alluding in Lolita to his wretched perversion and to those ambiguous photographs he took in dim rooms. He got away with it, as so many other Victorians got away with pederasty and numphalepsy. His were sad, scrawny little lymphets, bedraggled and half-undressed, or rather semi-undraped, as if participating in some dusty and dreadful charade. But sure, Tim Burton movies. Back to the summary. Humbert explains that losing Annabelle so young triggers a lifelong obsession with nymphets, a term of his own creation. I'll let him describe it. Between the age limits of nine and fourteen, there occur maidens who, to certain bewitched travellers, twice or many times older than they, reveal their true nature, which is not human, but nymphic, that is, demonic. And why haven't we heard of these nymphets before, Humbert? You have to be an artist and a madman, a creature of infinite melancholy, with a bubble of hot poison in your loins and a super-voluptuous flame permanently aglow in your subtle spine. Oh, how you have to cringe and hide, in order to discern at once the deadly little demon among the wholesome children. She stands unrecognized by them and unconscious herself of her fantastic power. You know, a lot of words, and none of them are pedophile. But that's Humbert's intentional approach here. He's taking the artist angle to objectifying children that we don't see infrequently in American culture before Lolita's publication, and a lot since. Here's a clip from Woody Allen's Manhattan. What do you do, Tracy? I go to high school. Oh, really? Really? Sure. Somewhere in the back on this one. From Woody Allen to Roman Polanski to Rudy Giuliani and Borat 2. Amazing! Yes, we got a Borat 2 reference into episode 1 of Lolita podcast. Thank you so much. I'll be accepting my Peabody now. But in framing his life, Humbert even manages to distance himself from his future crimes in his origin story by suggesting that pedophilia might be genetic in his family explaining that his father was once off, quote, touring Italy with Madame and her daughter, unquote. So to justify this attitude, Humbert invokes the name of other perceived to be great men, James I, Dante, Petrarch, and he's already referenced Poe. Can't you see? He's a very handsome artist, not a pedophile. And if you're me at 12 with the general opinion that adults have no reason to lie to me, and in a world where Vicky Cristina Barcelona hasn't even been released, you might take these words at face value. After he goes to university and becomes an academic himself, Humbert occupies his obsession by meeting with sex workers that look young and eventually marries a woman named Valeria to keep up appearances. Humbert hates Valeria. 
He admires her ability to imitate young girls when they first start dating, but he describes her as grotesque. He calls her an animated merkin, a large, puffy, short-legged, big-breasted, and practically brainless baba, and he's still angry when she leaves him for another man four years into their marriage in 1939. He considers killing her and her lover, but says that they leave before he can fight them. According to him, Valeria dies in childbirth in America in 1945 after being subjected to eugenic Nazi-adjacent medical experiments and seems to find the idea of this pretty funny. So after his divorce with Valeria, Humbert moves to New York right before World War II starts, starts working on a textbook, and is sent to a sanatorium for over a year after what he describes as a dreadful breakdown. He does not get specific about what this breakdown was related to or what his time there entailed. He then joins a scientific mission in the Arctic as a recorder of psychic relations. And after 20 months there and what sounds like a completely bullshit report on his part, he returns to America only to be hospitalized in a sanitarium again. And even with the second visit, we can only sort of guess at the details here. He describes it as another bout with insanity and mocks the psychiatrist that he works with. And once he's out the second time, he decides to work on his textbook again and heads for small town New England, where he will meet a girl named Dolores. So that's a lot of very relevant information, and this portion of Humbert's life is not especially cinematic and on the surface might seem to have little to do with the subject of the story, but there's a lot of very relevant stuff here. We learn how Humbert views women, both as children and as adults. We learn about the very glossed over repeated struggle with mental health that he deliberately never brings up again, and in fact, he has a completely dismissive view of his sanatorium stays, describing the following. I discovered there was an endless source of robust enjoyment in trifling with psychiatrists, cunningly leading them on, never letting them see that you know all the tricks of the trade, inventing for them elaborate dreams, and never allowing them the slightest glimpse of one's real sexual predicament. Now, I am a huge fan and very reliant on mental health support, but Humbert does not seem interested in working on himself as he tells it, to say the least. He presents as massively confident from his first words, claiming that he's seen his own psychiatric records and has everyone fooled, and the reason his stays at sanatoriums get extended are just for fun. And we don't have access to any other information here, and he has the upper hand all the while because we have no way of cross-checking this. One of my favorite broad claims he makes is when he calls himself an exceptionally handsome male, slow-moving, tall, with soft, dark hair and a gloomy but all the more seductive cast of demeanor. Now, as a reader, you can take his word for this or not, although if you have seen the movies, they seem to take his word for it. And it's here that the story you might remember begins. It's 1947. After the house he plans to move into burns down in the town of Ramsdale in the state of somewhere in New England, Humbert ends up boarding with Charlotte Hayes, a 30-something-year-old widow seeking a tenant. In keeping with his opinions of adult women, he calls her, quote, simple but not unattractive, and, quote, a weak solution of Marlena Dietrich, unquote. He's ready to turn down the small lodging situation when he notices her daughter in the garden. 12-year-old Dolores Hayes is sunbathing outside, and then his obsession with nymphets is stirred up all over again. And for the first time in 25 years, he claims, he feels the same things he felt for Annabelle Lee. He describes it like this. A little later, of course, she, this Nouvelle, this Lolita, my Lolita, was to eclipse completely her prototype. All I want to stress is that my discovery of her was a fatal consequence of that Princeton by the sea in my tortured past. So yeah, he stays at the house. 
Humbert begins keeping a journal that he claims this manuscript of photographic recollection of. Again, we really only have his word to go on here, but he spends days writing down every small interaction he has with Dolores, documenting everything, speculating whether she has her period or not, keeping track of her measurements, her coloring, everything. And he finds any opportunity to make physical contact with her. In a scene I will never forget reading for the first time, Dolores gets something caught in her eye and he licks it off her eyeball. And once it's out of her eye, he tells her he's just going to lick the other eyeball anyways. He describes her again. What drives me insane is the twofold nature of this nymphette, of every nymphette perhaps. This mixture in my Lolita of tender dreamy childishness and a kind of eerie vulgarity stemming from the snub-nosed cuteness of ads and magazine pictures. Charlotte Hayes, as Humbert tells it, struggles to connect with her daughter and doesn't really seem to like her, calling her rude and defiant, sullen and evasive. Then out of nowhere, Humbert mentions that if he ever seriously considers committing a murder, it would only be during a, quote, spell of insanity, unquote. And then he just returns to the diary. More close calls. He almost kisses Dolores. He fantasizes about a natural disaster killing Charlotte and leaving him and Dolores alone. He worries that he'll be sent back to a sanatorium. He rubs Dolores' leg so hard at one point that she has a bruise on her thigh the next day. And then I will place an extra trigger warning here. In one of the most excruciating scenes in the book, Humbert pleasures himself while bouncing Dolores on his lap, convinced that she's none the wiser, but there are some narrative indications, her legs twitching, the hairs on her legs bristling, comments she makes later in the book that indicate that this may not be true. She's singing her favorite song as this happens, but Humbert can't really remember what it is, only how he felt. Blessed be the Lord, she had noticed nothing. He says at the end of this passage, noting to the reader how kind and smart he was about it. How careful, how chaste. The whole wine-sweet event is if viewed with what my lawyer has called in a private talk we have had, impartial sympathy. He says this to us before the anecdote and afterward. Quote, the child knew nothing. I had done nothing to her. Unquote. What is certain is that Charlotte is none the wiser to this. Dolores goes to summer camp, and before she leaves, she runs up the stairs to Humbert's room and kisses him for the first time. She then leaves for Charlotte to drive her upstate, and Charlotte has left behind a letter for Humbert. It says that Charlotte is deeply in love with Humbert, and if he doesn't want to marry her, he should leave the house immediately. This letter is so over the top, and again, pulled only from Humbert's memory, <laughs> but some parts of it still make me laugh. Quote, I am a passionate and lonely woman, and you are the love of my life, unquote. It's all very, you know, one life to live. Back to the horrifying part. Humbert realizes that his only way to stay near Dolores permanently without giving away his plan to continue to assault her is to agree to marry Charlotte. And then he says again, apropos of nothing, he's definitely not thinking about murdering Charlotte, you guys. He's not. I did not plan to marry poor Charlotte in order to eliminate her in some vulgar, gruesome and dangerous manner, such as killing her by placing five bichloride of mercury tablets in her proprandial sherry or anything like that. But he does admit to planning to experiment on slipping her and Dolores sleeping pills so that he can rape Dolores without her or her mother knowing. He fantasizes about blackmailing Charlotte into accepting it if she ever finds out. But of course, Charlotte doesn't know any of this. And so when she gets home and he accepts her proposal, she is thrilled and they're married very soon after. So again, 
Humbert Humbert is married to a woman he hates, and he spends the summer experimenting with sleeping pills and imagining her daughter during sex with her. Charlotte continues to speak ill of Dolores, calling her everything from distrustful to aggressive to negativistic on a worksheet about her daughter's personality, and says that she plans to send her to boarding school after camp to free up the home for her and Humbert. This, of course, is the opposite of what Humbert wants, and he's furious, but he doesn't show it because he's afraid that arguing with Charlotte will hurt his position and access to Dolores. And again, he discusses considering killing Charlotte at length, this time calculating whether he could drown her in the local lake without anyone witnessing it. He ultimately decides against doing it and convinces her to let Dolores come home, so he's definitely not going to kill her, guys. But shortly after that, Charlotte figures out Humbert's game while snooping around his space and reading one of his journals. Journals that describe his fantasies about Dolores and calling her things like, quote, the big bitch, the obnoxious mama, unquote, and his intention to prey on Dolores indefinitely. And I think that Melanie Griffith playing Charlotte Hayes plays this really well in the 1997 movie. You're a monster. You're a despicable criminal monster. No, no. If you come near me, I'll scream out the window. Just... Get away from me! Humbert goes into full gaslight mode. She's hallucinating. Let's have a drink. And he leaves the room to go prepare some drinks. But a few minutes later, once the drinks are prepared, he gets a phone call. Charlotte's been hit by a car trying to get to a mailbox to mail someone a letter revealing Humbert's treachery. And that's it. She's dead. As Humbert tells it in the story, he got lucky. He definitely didn't kill her, you guys. After a swift funeral and convincing the neighbors that he had secretly been Dolores' biological father all along and was reuniting with Charlotte as opposed to meeting her less than 10 weeks ago, Humbert leaves Ramsdale to pick up Dolores from camp. He manages to get her from the camp without Dolores learning that her mother has been killed and immediately brings her to a lodge that he and Charlotte had discussed going to for their honeymoon, the Enchanted Hunter's Hotel. Dolores teases Humbert once she's in his car, saying that she's been, quote, revoltingly unfaithful to him, unquote, and mentioning that he hasn't kissed her yet. And they kiss again, him noting her lack of experience. She asks him if they're lovers, because her mother, she says with a sense of satisfaction, would be so angry if they were. He says no. And when they get to the hotel where they're sharing a room, the following exchange takes place. You're crazy. Why, my darling? Because, my darling, when my darling mother finds out to divorce you and strangle me. Now, we're not rich. And so when we travel, we're sure to be, I mean, we'll be thrown together. Sometimes. Two people sharing the same hotel room are bound to enter into a, uh, into a, well, how can I put it, into a, into a kind of, um... The word is incest. Unbeknownst to Dolores, Humbert drugs her that night, assuring the reader that he only ever intended to rape Dolores while she was drugged. While he's waiting for the drugs to take, he goes to the lobby and runs into a very drunk man who seems to be onto his scheme, and this reads as innocuous, but this guy is important later. Humbert returns upstairs, but Dolores isn't sleeping that heavily, so instead he decides to just sleep beside her. And again, pretty heavy trigger warning here. Uh, the next morning, Humbert tells us they have sex with Dolores fully conscious. And to be clear, this is absolutely rape. But Humbert, of course, begins deflecting to his jury immediately. 
He says, quote, I'm going to tell you something very strange. It was she who seduced me, he says. He describes the crime in typical flowery Humbert detail and calls Dolores, quote, the wincing child, unquote. Before moving on, he assures us again that he loves her and reminds us that marrying 12-year-olds was still legal in some states in 1947 and... Sensitive gentlewomen of the jury, I was not even her first lover. Afterward, Dolores tells Humbert that she had had sex with a boy at camp over the summer, and for Humbert, not taking her virginity when raping her makes the crime easier to cope with. After they leave the hotel, Dolores is in physical pain all day, and Humbert tells the reader that in the space of just a morning, he had had strenuous sex with her three times. Later in the day, Dolores says, You chump, you revolting creature. I was a daisy fresh girl, and look what you've done to me. I ought to call the police and tell them you raped me. Oh, you dirty, dirty old man. Unquote. Her pain continues as they continue to drive, and it is only then that Humbert tells Dolores that her mother is dead. The first section of the book ends with just a devastating passage. At the hotel, we had separate rooms, but in the middle of the night, she came sobbing into mine and we made it up very gently. You see, she had absolutely nowhere else to go. And this ends the first section of the book. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. 
kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Dolores, for the little dialogue we get from her, calls Humbert a rapist twice in this book. And there are many moments where, in a larger context, it's basically impossible to say that she does not have a semblance of what's going on. She's telling us that she does, even through all these walls of prose that Humbert's putting up in front of her. In part two of the novel, Humbert takes Dolores around the United States and continues to rape her on a nightly basis in motels. Dolores finds a semblance of routine in things she likes. Jazz, square dancing, Sundays, going to movies and reading magazines. When she got restless or misbehaved on the road, Humbert would threaten to prolong her, quote, exile for months and years, unquote, employing every tactic he has at his disposal, from the ancient precedent of adults marrying children to long-winded speeches like this. I would not advise you to consider yourself my cross-country slave, and I deplore the Man Act as lending itself to a dreadful pun. What Humbert's referring to here is the Man Act, which made transporting girls and women across state lines for the purpose of debauchery against the law, which is good. It was also weaponized against black men in interracial relationships and against Jewish people, which we will talk about in later episodes. Later on, he plays devil's advocate, saying, <laughs> Let us see what happens if you, a minor, are accused of having impaired the morals of an adult at a respectable inn. What happens if you complain to the police of my having kidnapped and raped you? Let us suppose they believe you. You become a ward of the Department of Public Welfare. This is the situation. This is the choice. Don't you think, under the circumstance, Dolores Hayes had better stick to her old man? She is trapped for a full year. August 1947 to August 1948. At one point, she asks him how long they'll be traveling like this, quote, doing filthy things together and never behaving like ordinary people, unquote. He describes their months primarily as a vacation, harping longer on roadside attraction descriptions than on their arguments. And we catch a few of Dolores' stray words, quote, I'd be a sap if I took your opinion seriously. You can't boss me. I despise you, and so on. Humbert is lightly paranoid, but mainly elated. He goes so far as to fantasize about getting Dolores pregnant with a baby girl and doing the same thing to her years later. Finally, Humbert chooses a place for them to settle down, a different New England town a safe distance from Ramsdale called Beardsley, where Dolores is enrolled in a private school and he gets a job at a local university. And for the first time since her mother's death, Dolores is allowed to make friends and go to school, to an extent because around this time, Humbert tightens his control on her considerably by creating a monetary system for having sex with him. He describes it like this. This was more than a generous arrangement, considering she constantly received all kinds of small presents and had for the asking any sweet meat or movie under the moon. Although, of course, I might fondly demand an additional kiss, or even a whole collection of assorted caresses when I knew she coveted very badly. She was, however not easy to deal with. Only very listlessly did she earn her three pennies, or three nickels, per day, 
and she proved to be a cruel negotiator whenever it was in her power, which I could not live with more than a few days in a row, and which, because of the very nature of love's languor, I could not obtain by force. When she's not paying attention, Humbert steals her money back and blames it on the neighbor. He monitors her communication, forbids her from being with boys without his supervision, but insists on her bringing girlfriends around so he can ogle them, and he only allows her to join the school drama club when the headmistress of Dolores' school, who interprets his bad attitude as being a strict European parent, asks him to. In that same meeting, the headmistress mentions that Dolores is doing worse in school and is, quote, morbidly uninterested in sexual matters or, to be exact, represses her curiosity in order to save her ignorance and self-dignity, unquote. And while the headmistress fails to ever ask Dolores why this is, it scares Humbert nonetheless, and he allows Dolores to play a part in The Hunted Enchanters. Promptly after this meeting with her headmistress, he finds Dolores in a classroom and gives her 65 cents to give him a hand job. Dolores is excited to be in the drama club, and The Hunted Enchanters is a recent play about a nymphette of sorts played by her who falls in love with a poet. She forbids Humbert from spying on her rehearsals, but starts bringing up that the hotel, quote, where you first raped me, unquote, was called The Enchanted Hunters, where Humbert had met that strange drunk man I told you to remember. The night before the first performance, Humbert realizes Dolores has been keeping the money for her piano lessons instead of going to them, and he confronts her about it. Per Humbert. She said I had attempted to violate her several times when I was her mother's rumor. She said I was sure I had murdered her mother. She said she would sleep with the very first fellow who asked her and I could do nothing about it. On this night, he yells at her, grabs her arm so hard she's injured, and she flees from the house. Humbert's afraid that she's gone for good, but not quite yet. He finds Dolores later in a better mood and tells him that she wants to leave the school and the town at once and return to the road. Humbert is thrilled. Back on the road, it doesn't take long for Humbert's suspicion to escalate. He's convinced Dolores is communicating with another man whenever possible. He sees her talk to a man in the car, but Dolores insists it was a stranger. This happens a couple different times until somewhere in Colorado, Dolores gets sick and needs to go to the hospital. She recovers, but this brief separation from Humbert gives her the opportunity to make her escape. When Humbert returns to bring her back from the hospital, he's told that she has been taken already by her, quote, uncle. Finally, at age 14, Dolores has escaped. Humbert searches for her for years. He traces their steps back across the country, trying to figure out who Dolores was communicating and left with and fails to do so. He dreams of her, but she takes the form of his dead wives Valeria, Charlotte, or both. He mentions in the space of a sentence that he spends another winter and spring in a Quebec sanatorium, not focusing on his mental health, but writing long poems about Lolita. He meets and starts a doomed relationship with a young alcoholic named Rita for two years, 1950 to 1952, who he promptly abandons the moment he hears from Lolita for the first time in three years. And her letter breaks my heart every single time. Dear Dad, how's everything? I'm married. I'm going to have a baby. I guess he's going to be a big one. I guess he'll come right for Christmas. This is a hard letter to write. I'm going nuts because we don't have enough to pay our debts and get out of here. Dick has promised a big job in Alaska. Pardon me for withholding our home address, but he may still be mad at me and Dick must not know. Please do send us a check, Dad. We could manage with three or four hundred or even less. Anything is welcome. You might sell my old things because once we get there, the dough will start rolling in. Right, please. I've gone through so much sadness and hardship. Yours expecting, Dolly, Mrs. Richard F. Schiller. 
Humbert finds out where she is by tracking her down against her explicit wishes, thinking that the man she's married to was the same one she took off with back in 1949, and arrives with a pistol at a rundown house on Hunter Road, Enchanted Hunters, Hunted Enchanters, nice touch, Nabokov, to find a 17-year-old Dolores, pregnant, poor, with a husband close to her own age, the sweet mechanic Dick Schiller. Humbert realizes that Dick is not the guy he's looking for, and pushes Dolores on the identity of the man from 1949. It's Claire Quilty, the drunk man from the Enchanted Hunters Hotel, the playwright of the Hunted Enchanters who directed Dolores and Beardsley, and the nephew of the dentist from Ramsdale. It's here where Dolores says that she'd known Claire Quilty and had been pursued by him before she ever met Humbert since she was 10 years old, and that she'd heard that he'd almost been thrown in jail for molesting young girls when she first met him. And it was this Claire Quilty that had followed them from Beardsley to Colorado and planned her escape. Where was he now? Dolores didn't know. She, at 14, was in love with him and thought that he wanted to be with her, but quickly realized he was much more interested in putting her in hardcore pornography. When she refused, he kicked her out of the house, and a dejected Dolores began making her own living as a waitress before meeting Dick and getting married. After extracting the information he wants from her, Humbert realizes, as he tells it, that he's still in love with her. There she was with her ruined looks and her adult, rope-veined, narrow hands and her goose-fleshed white arms and her shallow ears and her unkempt armpits. There she was, my Lolita, hopelessly worn at seventeen. And I looked and looked at her and knew as clearly as I am to die that I loved her anything I had ever seen or imagined on earth. He begs Dolores to leave with him. She asks him if he'll give her the money if she doesn't go. He says no, he'll give her the money either way and hands her $4,000 of his own money and what's left from selling the old house in Ramsdale, the one thing Charlotte was really able to give her daughter in the end. Dolores is so excited and Humbert asks her to come with him one last time. She says, no, no, honey, no. And she does not say this, but Humbert projects this final thought on her, referring to Claire Quilty. He broke my heart. You merely broke my life. Dolores is excited to have the money, and she sees him off. Humbert leaves, tracks down Claire Quilty, murders him, and is arrested for nothing he ever did to Dolores Hayes, but for murdering Quilty. Just one last Humbert quote as he overhears a group of girls playing towards the end. Quote, I stood listening to that musical vibration from my lofty slope, to those flashes of separate cries with a kind of demure murmur for background. And then I knew that the hopelessly poignant thing was not Lolita's absence from my side, but the absence of her voice from that concord. Unquote. The book ends here, but remember, we were told in the foreword that Mrs. Richard Schiller dies in childbirth in 1952. That's Dolores, dying at only 17 years old. And that's Lolita, the account from an admitted predator of his rape and kidnapping of a 12-year-old girl, with a smattering of murders depending on how much you believe him. I know this was a very long description, but I really feel that knowing what happens in the book exactly makes it a lot easier for you to see how far away many adaptations get away from the very difficult source material. Nabokov, who we really haven't gotten to talk about yet, was pretty clear on his feelings about Humbert Humbert from the moment of publication, saying the following, quote, Humbert Humbert is a vain and cruel wretch who manages to appear, quote, touching, unquote. 
Now, why he chose to write this story is something we're going to talk about. Who he's pulling inspiration from for these doomed characters is something else altogether. But as far as the book goes, Lolita is designed to lead its readers astray. You were told before the narrative even starts that you were reading the heavily biased, often ridiculously inaccurate account of a child molester and murderer who is appealing directly to his jurors. From the first words Humbert says, you learn that Lolita is not even a name anyone else in her life uses except for him. But then, well, goddamn, he's a pretty good writer. Imagine me. I shall not exist if you do not imagine me. Humbert says he is extremely manipulative. And by the time we learn who Mrs. Richard Schiller is, and there's Dolores still being named based on the dominant man on her life to the very end, that there is no one else alive to give their account of these events. Charlotte Hayes is dead. Dolores Hayes is dead. Humbert is the only person to tell us his version of the events. And even so, with this deeply biased account of what he claims to be love, even though Dolores assures him just months before her death that it was not, there are glimmers of Dolores inside of this story. She is raped hundreds of times by Humbert. She's abducted by him. She's lied to, hit, spied to, stolen from, and those facts are referenced inside of all this fancy murderer prose. And still, with no adult on earth that she can trust, she gets away. And still, she only changes hands to her next abuser. A problem a lot of readers bump up against in reading Lolita is that in spite of how much is talked about Lolita from Humbert, her exact measurements, horrifying details of assault, we don't get to know Dolores all that well, aside from what Humbert shares of mostly their arguments. But even through the severe limitations that come with a heavily unreliable narrator trying to talk you out of thinking what you think about him, this is not the story of a precocious girl seducing an older man as he describes it, and the reality is right there in the pages. It's the story of a girl having her life taken from her by a horrific if well-spoken pedophile and all of the other adults in her life who failed to help her along the way. At the time of publication, this was a topic that was completely forbidden to discuss in the United States and in most of the Western world, in spite of its reality becoming increasingly common, and we'll be discussing the real-life case that inspired Lolita in a future episode. But then, as now, I think that your interpretation of this book is a bit of a mirror. My first read of it was very impacted by my age, my experiences up until that time, and the aesthetics surrounding not just the movie adaptations, but around sexualizing young girls in general. And after reading this book back four times to prepare for this show, I'm now far more aggravated with how it was presented to me than by the work itself. For me, a close read of this work reveals that Nabokov is not glorifying the predator. I believe it's our culture that has. There's a quote from Vera Nabokov, Vladimir's wife, who we'll be talking about in future episodes, on her feelings about Dolores the character. They all miss the fact that the horrid little brat Lolita is essentially very good indeed, or she would not have straightened out after being crushed so terribly and found a decent life with poor Dick more to her liking than the other kind. Another take on Dolores I found really impactful in my research was reading Lolita in Tehran, a memoir by Iranian author and professor Azar Nafisi. 
It's the account of an undercover book club that she made for her female students after leaving as a teacher at an Iranian university. From 1995 to 1997, Nafisi and her group analyze Western literature through the lens of students who haven't known anything but the oppressive gender roles of revolutionary Iran. Per the title, they read Lolita, and Dolores's plight really affected the whole group and got them discussing their own girlhoods 40 years after the book's publication. One member of the group, Mashid said this. It is hard for me to read the parts about Lolita's feelings. All she wants to be is a normal girl. Nafisi goes on to say, Lolita belongs to a category of victims who have no defense and are never given a chance to articulate their own story. As such, she becomes a double victim. Not only her life, but also her life's story is taken from her. We told ourselves that we were in that class to prevent ourselves from falling victim to this second crime. And as we'll continue to discuss, there's a lot of very valid criticism around Lolita the book, like in Rebecca Solnit's wonderful essay, Men Explain Lolita to Me, which she wrote after getting some extremely condescending feedback while making the argument that the literary canon that Nabokov is very much a part of is perhaps dominated by straight white guys with a tendency to harp on the suffering of their female characters. Huh. Here's what Solnit says. So much of feminism has been women speaking up about hitherto unacknowledged experiences. And so much of anti-feminism has been men telling them these things don't happen. You were not just raped, a rapist may say. And then if you persist, there may be death threats. Because killing people is the easy way to be the only voice in the room. Non-white people get much the same rubbish about how there isn't racism, and they don't get treated differently, and race doesn't affect any of us. And this is all very much in the wheelhouse of how Humbert Humbert represents Dolores. And the tendency to take this information at face value from Humbert is a huge contributor to why Lolita has come to popularly mean the sexualization of young girls instead of the story of a young girl's life being destroyed when she is sexualized and abused. And I'm not saying that every appreciator of the book feels this way. I'm not saying that at all. But I do think you'll recognize this condescending missing the fucking point tone that Solnit is describing here. A nice liberal man came along and explained to me this book was actually an allegory, as though I hadn't thought of that yet. It is, and it's also a novel about a big old guy violating a spindly child over and over and over. Then she weeps. And then another nice liberal man came along and said, you don't seem to understand the basic truth of art. I wouldn't care if a novel was about a bunch of women running around castrating men. If it was great writing, I'd want to read it. Probably more than once. Of course, there is no such body of literature, and if the nice liberal man who made that statement had been assigned book after book full of castration scenes, maybe even celebrations of castration, it might have made an impact on him. One of the main problems people have with Lolita as a cultural figure is how she's shown in advertising the heart-shaped glasses gazing at the viewer, the schoolgirl clothes about to pop off that we've seen a million times. But that's not the Lolita that Nabokov writes about. The subject of all of the abuse of this story is Dolores, a 12-year-old. So before we continue into the rest of the series, I want to remind you the age Dolores is when Humbert first violates her. Here's Amanda Bynes at 12. I'm 12 turning 13, April 3rd. Yay! Yay! Teenager! Yeah. 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 You can't drive yet. No, well, 
Yes, I can. Here's Marseille Martin at 13. It was amazing. Like, if you know, Beyonce is like my favorite person. Like, I love her. We are talking about a 12-year-old girl. And throughout this show, I'm going to continue to call the character as we know her, Dolores, and the book and the idea surrounding it as Lolita, because they are two different people. Dolores is present in Slips of Humbert's pen, but he doesn't let us get too close to her by design. The Lolita we meet at subsequent points in pop culture require taking Humbert's word at face value, when in the book, before you hear a word that he says, you know that that's the first thing you absolutely should not do. The cultural legacy of Lolita has just as much to do with Dolores' absence as it does with the presence of Humbert's distorted fantasy. So if you've gotten this far into the episode and had some hesitation about reading or rereading Lolita, the book, beforehand, and you're willing to give it another shot, I'd be interested to talk to you on the show. So if you like, I'm going to be cobbling together a book club of listeners to discuss the book on Discord over the next eight weeks or so as this series continues to come out. And for the link on that, I will leave it in the show notes as well as uh, pinned to my Twitter account over at Jamie Loftus Help. So that's episode one. And it does require some addressing that this book was written by someone whose life experiences are way more aligned with Humbert's than Dolores's. So, Nabokov, why the fuck did you write this? Next week on Lolita Podcast. This has been a production of iHeartRadio. My name's Jamie Loftus. I write and host the show. My producers are the wonderful Sophie Lichterman, Miles Gray, Beth Ann Macaluso, and Jack O'Brien. My editor is the amazing Isaac Taylor. Additional research and transcription work from Ben Loftus. Music is by Zoe Blade. And our theme is from Brad Dickert. Thank you so much to my guest voices on this episode as well. Aziz Vora as Humbert Humbert, Robert Evans as Vladimir Nabokov, Julia Claire, Anna Hosnier, Shireen Lani Yunus, Grace Thomas, and Miles Gray. We'll see you next week. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, 
all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.